Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Jake Blunt. We recorded this via Skype a couple weeks ago, and I recorded my musical parts afterwards. Skype episodes are not the Get Up in the Cool ideal, but I don't have enough local folks to record at a social distance between now and whenever the vaccine is created and distributed, but I think you'll like what we did. I want to thank Get Up in the Cool's newest Patreon supporter and former guest of the show, Kate Lichtenstein. Kate, you didn't have to do that. You already contributed so much with your lovely music and stories. Thank you. I hope you enjoy the Secret Bonus Track podcast. Let me know if you have any trouble getting subscribed in whatever podcast app you already use. Anyone else who wants to chip in can find a link to Get Up in the Cool's Patreon in the show notes on your podcast app. I also want to make a last call for Earful of Fiddle. They are not sponsoring this episode, but they're a super cool music camp, and Jake and I are both teaching banjo this year. You really should come if you can. It's taking place June 21st through the 26th on the internet, and there's lots of other music and dance classes you can attend as well. I hope you can make it. Go sign up at earfulofiddle.com. One more thing before we get started. Jake and I are both part of Porch Pride, a bluegrass pride queer and teen festival on June 27th and 28th. It's a streaming festival. You can watch on the Bluegrass Pride Facebook page and their YouTube channel or their website. The bill is amazing. I can't believe I'm on it. It's this awesome lineup of queer and allied artists. As far as I'm concerned, my set in this festival is my coming out party, so that's great. There's a link in the show notes. Go check out the rest of the bill. Donate to the festival. Jake has an amazing new album out with a lot of Get Up in the Cool alum, so stick around afterwards and I'll tell you how to get that and support his and their music. But first, here's another lovely interview and jam with Jake Blunt. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Okay, I'm tired now. We're, yeah, we're done. <laughs> Welcome back to Get Up in the Cool, Jake. Thank you for having me back yeah. again. My co-host <laughs> at this point. Uh, wow, wow, it sure is. It sure is nice to. I know that maybe it's like a little bit sensitive for some people to have, like, early in their fiddling recorded on Get Up in the Cool. <laughs> but I think it's like I think it's like really awesome that I've had you on so many times and you fiddle every time and to hear like your progression as a fiddler um I I am just absolutely in love with your fiddling and the way you play I I always have been but I love all of your um uh, uh spontaneity with, with with the variations and your the the way that you vary the tune in in ways that I wouldn't necessarily think to in my like note brain <laughs> and I don't know it's just lovely to watch uh you your your relationship with the instrument well thank you I'm very flattered good <laughs> I'm trying to flatter you um and I absolutely mean it what was that tune that was old timey gray eagle from Manco Sneed, a Cherokee fiddler from Cherokee, North Carolina, part of a large musical family. Um, yeah, it's a it's a fun tune. There's an old recording that's gotten some circulation of Manco playing that solo when he's much older, uh, and it's this really funny tune that it sounds like it's just a weird C tune in the recording. Right. And then his family, when Tatiana and I went down to perform at the Museum of the Cherokee Indian, they gave us these older recordings that his son-in-law, J. Laurel Johnson, had made uh, of Manco and Mary Sneed, his daughter, and J. Mm. Laurel Johnson, her husband, uh, playing music together. Uh, Manco on fiddle, J. Laurel Johnson on banjo, and Mary Sneed on guitar. And that song was on there, but the banjo was just playing roles on an A minor chord the whole time. Like, there yes. was no C in sight. And Tatiana and I were like, what the fuck is going on? Because we, like, <laughs> we learned it in C, and we thought of it that way. Um, and then she was like, Oh my god, I just realized it's in cross tuning and it oh just goodness. like blew the tune wide open uh and it turned into like my favorite thing on the new album. Yeah. I if I remember right in um Spider Tales, uh you is this the tune where you do a little bit you I feel like you flirt with the C a little bit at some points? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I didn't, like, know that that's what I was doing, necessarily. Yeah. Like, because I play banjo on it, so I was just like, oh, this is a cool low variation I can do. And then you were like, oh, a C chord! And I was like, true. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really bad at at knowing what I'm doing <laughs> in general. Well, <laughs> <laughs> just... Just because there's a like some sort of colonial name for it doesn't mean you don't know what it is, <laughs> what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one of us is thousands and thousands of dollars in debt for um, a music theory degree. So <laughs> fair <laughs> uh, for whatever that's worth. 
Mm. Um, this album is this album is amazing. I absolutely love it. Uh, it was it was really great to see um, the old time central Zoom hang out, like listen through. Uh, I'm glad I was able to make part of that um, and to hear to hear everyone talk about it who was involved uh you had um judy and jeff there um mm-hmm. now was jeff did jeff and judy produce it or just jeff how did, both, how of did them that produced it. both of them produced it together yes. right um and because i know that they both played on it too or at least jeff did and judy's Dude, they on both one did they yeah. both did under duress it was Under, it was yes. a, a lot of peer pressure involved i'm glad i'm glad you all coerced them <laughs> yes um, me too i i think what was really special about it uh, other than like the music which is very special and i want to talk about like what is the concept of the album uh especially in light of to peel back the curtain we recorded this episode um before and it did not work uh, for various technical difficulty reasons. You were sort of my guinea pig uh, for the whole remote recorded get up in the cool thing. And this is our second attempt. But I am glad that we get to try it again because there have been some developments in the world that make your album even more um, even more germane <laughs> to like current events. Um, but before we get to that, I want to say it was really cool to see a whole like a whole team of people uh supporting you this time usually you just do duo work um or play in kind of someone else's band um or but like this is it was really neat to have you at the head of a large project with a lot of people who were just like yeah i was just like honored to be a part of this uh it was really really cool and that's and it made a lot of sense <laughs> it was really fun i i had a really good time putting it together. I was just talking to Nick about this earlier today that it just like felt so good. Like everyone was so excited to be there. I was so excited to have everyone there. Yeah. I really just like put together my dream team of musicians. I was like, who who is the best I can possibly get Yes. to like do what I want here and just ask them. And I was really lucky that they all agreed to do it. Um, but it was it was a super fun experience, even aside from the recording and the music aspect of it. Just spending time with all of those people was so, so fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it ended up being a uh, well, I guess the official band ended up being all queer, except for I guess I my impression is that Jed, uh, uh, Jeff and Judy are not or at least um, yes. don't identify that way. Yeah. Yes. They, they had their cameos. Other than that, uh, the whole... Everyone who was there to be the band... Yes. Uh, who did not get tricked into being in the band. <laughs> um, those those people were... Um, were Yeah, everyone was queer. Perfectly gender balanced, despite there being five of us. Yes. So it was pretty ideal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was it was a really great thing, um, and that was something I did totally by accident. I literally yeah. was just like putting together in my head. I was like, obviously, I want Tatiana on here because half of the stuff on the album, more than half, was like developed with her, and yeah. I feel like so attached to having her voice be present, and I just value her musicianship so much. 
um, I knew I wanted percussive dance on some of the stuff and Nick and I have known each other for, you know, years and spent a lot of time together. And I was like, great, gonna ask Nick to do it. Um, and then, you know, looking for bass players and, you know, it doesn't get better than Hazy and guitar players doesn't get better than Rachel. I yep. just thought of like who, who would be best, um, and who I really wanted to work with. And it just happened to be that way, which I thought was pretty cool and kind of yeah. made me feel better about how far we've come that I, I accidentally made an all queer old time band. Right. I love that. I love the idea that that's not some sort of mission statement of the album. Uh, but it's a thing that you get to celebrate as a candid fact. Yeah. That's really, really special. Yeah. It worked out really well. I'm super proud of it. Um, I was really excited, honestly, to also take it on the road. Um, yeah, I bet. <laughs> purely because, like, George Jackson was going to play fiddle because Tatiana already had stuff on the books. And I was yes. like, he's, he's going to be, like, the only, like, white man on this <laughs> stage for old-time music right now. Like, it's yes, just going to, yes. like, confuse so many people who come to this show. They're like, I, this isn't what I thought I was coming to. <laughs> um... <laughs> So I, I was excited. I was excited to just, you know, fly in the face of everybody's expectations. And unfortunately, it, it didn't wind up happening this time. But yeah. who knows what the future will hold. 2021. Yeah. Somehow will be. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully not worse. Fingers crossed we make it that far. Honestly, <laughs> it's week by week at this point. Um. So as I referred to earlier, uh, like uh, current events, specifically the the murder of George Floyd, uh, I think um, make this album extra potent right now. Would you play a song for us and then we can talk more about about that? Yeah, I will do Roused About. Perfect.
<laughs> that's a that's a Dink Roberts, right? It is. Now, Dink now, Roberts. do you try to exactly mimic uh, Dink Roberts' style, or like, how oh does one gosh. go about learning it? <laughs> we don't need to like, like throw shade at shit posters in this podcast episode. <laughs> we have better uses of our time. <laughs> I think no. I think I think this is like you know. So like for for the the clarification of the audience, that was a reference to this post someone made last night. Um, that I don't know how to explain it without like verbally explaining a meme format, which isn't funny. But basically, it was like um, asserting that my version of that song was not sufficiently imitative of Dink's style, and that I had failed to uh, correctly render the aesthetics of my culture um yeah from a white person from new york and um i was like wow that's a lot of opinions for someone who ain't in the culture but yeah that aside uh i think one of the things that really excites me about the way dink plays so much of his music is that he doesn't sound like anybody else right he has this super idiosyncratic weird way of doing everything and i've talked to a lot of other banjo players when i was first trying to figure that song out i was just like reaching out to people and be like what do you what do you do with this and most of them were like i don't do anything with it i listen to it um but i think i i was talking to joseph DeCosimo about it at the nightlight in uh in chapel hill north carolina and i think he just said something like no one gets it right um yeah. we were talking about it. he was just like you just like try to make the same sounds <laughs> um and i definitely uh did my best to make the same sounds but i also definitely changed a lot of things uh i definitely like a more full chordal sound than dink tends to go for uh sure he's really a lot of single stringing stuff and and i appreciate that sound but also with what i was going for i wanted like a very strong very heavy rhythm because that's one of i think the through lines of the whole album uh is yes the kind of steady thrum between all of the songs yeah absolutely I remember the first time I heard Dink Roberts. I think I was with Ben Bannock, um, who, by the way, just became a supporter of the show. Shout out to Ben. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think it was with him, and we were. Car- it was when I met him. We were carpooling to Clifftop, and we were listening to, you know, getting excited to play a bunch of old time. We were listening to you know a bunch of FRC recordings and stuff, and then we listened to, yeah, the Field Recorders Collective, Dink Roberts. And I remember it was like five hours into the trip. We had basically stopped talking. We were just like listening. And then about like three quarters of the way through the album, we were just like, what are we listening to? Yeah. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not what we're, <laughs> this is not what we're preparing to play uh, at Clifftop. No one plays like this. This is wild. Uh, yeah. The idea of, yeah, anyone being able to, <laughs> or even having the thought I should <laughs> replicate this is absolutely bizarre it is and i think like there's i want to say like i do think that there's value in like being a pedant about the way that you play old time music and i really admire people who can like go through and make every bow stroke the same on a tune and there are definitely banjo pieces that i've learned even recently where i've like tabbed out every single note because i don't feel like i get what's happening unless i like do every single detail I think Dink, when you listen to the whole body of his work, it's kind of clear what he's going for. 
And again, this is like a really, really interesting multifaceted musician, right? Dink was also a really incredible slide guitar player. I had and no idea. That it never got recorded because the folklorists only wanted one slice. Uh, yep. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, part of the same thing that like, you know, irked me about that post yesterday is just this tendency on the part of white folks who are interested in these black traditions to like decide in advance that they know what the right way to do it is and ignore a bunch of other stuff that doesn't fit their preconceived notions. Yes. Right. And not necessarily understand that like the evolution that took place between banjo and early blues, you know, a lot of those early blues guitarists learn from banjo playing relatives, that evolution yeah. and that change is a part of the black tradition. And when we think about, urban and rural settings we have to realize that at the time dink was living in and you know for the past like 100 years people had been going back and forth to the city all the time right yes my grandmother grew up in philadelphia and then moved back to her mom's hometown of smithfield virginia where she met my grandfather and mm. there were a ton of other members of my family who were going up like working in mines up near pittsburgh and coming back down and sure. working in philly uh, people moving to different parts of Virginia. So there's a long history there of us going to different places and finding yeah. out what each other were doing and bringing it back and doing different stuff with it. And that creativity, I think, is a really important piece. And I take umbrage to the notion in any case that traditional music should be something that's static and dead because it's ongoing and we're putting a lot of time and effort into it. And I think yeah. that it's not respectful of ourselves as modern musicians to pretend that the things we're doing don't matter. Um, but I also think that when it comes to black music, that there's a perniciousness to the idea that <laughs> this music is a fossil, right? That it's fixed yeah. in time and no one does it anymore because it helps us erase all of the black people who've carried on that tradition yes, and helps us reinforce these artificial boundaries between blues and old time and religious music that exists. I don't know if you want to call it gospel or whatever else. I've realized sure. everyone calls their church music gospel and it's not all what I would call gospel. Sure. Um, so there's different, you know, the, the the genre boundaries are are imposed on the music and I think that it's really important for us when we think about how these traditions take shape and evolve if we want to have a whole picture we have to realize it's never been stuck in one place and uh, I think Dink and his contemporaries are examples of that in that if you listen to you know the Black Banjo Songsters compilation CD that he's on everyone sounds different and you're like, you want to talk about how weird Dink is? I would not touch John Snipes with a 10-foot pole. Not because it isn't awesome. I have no idea how you make those sounds with a banjo. I listen, I'm like, what is he doing? I have no idea. Um, I, I can't hypothesize. So <laughs> I think it's just, um, to me, always been important to respect the role of the many different ways that people play and the different voices yeah. people have brought to the tradition and the different ways that we've brought it with us to new places as we've moved back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like, um, at least in, in this country, people really like purity. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. and, 
<laughs> like I, I think that infects the, our attitudes about the music quite a bit and who has access to it and uh, who is doing it in an authentic way or not, um, which can make it really challenging for someone like me who's, uh, you know, in my own way, like my heritage is sort of like settler heritage. Um, like just, just in that, like my family, you know, uh, probably showed up on the East coast at some point and then they slowly made their way West and stopped along the way. And like, uh, <laughs> It's, it's, it makes it difficult for me to be like, okay, then what is my heritage? And it's like, mm -hmm. well, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to say. Um, and I think what the answer to a lot of like West coast, um, white folks is, is okay. So generic heavy air quotes, white culture, American white culture, I guess I'll just have to use, I'll just have to have that. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, I don't think we, I think we have like more access than to, to things than, than we realize out here because we uh we're not native to here um and we've been affected by a lot of different communities and um but it, it i think in our brains it makes it hard for us to like it's hard to spin a narrative about something um if it's not like extra authentic yeah and i think part of that also comes back to the way the traditions have been portrayed and that Every time I go somewhere and talk about string band music or old time music or whatever you want to call it, it's synonymized with Appalachia, which has an incredible string band tradition that I love. Yes. So I don't mean to demean that at all. But Will Adam was a black fiddler who lived 20 minutes from where I grew up. Yeah. You know, in Kensington, Maryland. Um, there were folks in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. The first known written mention of a banjo is from Manhattan. Yeah. This isn't something that belongs to one region. And I think we've seen like a really strong representation from Midwest fiddlers recently that I think is yeah. really cool. And that I think is making, you know, moves to acknowledge the fact that everywhere had string band music at one point. Yeah. And there might be a limited amount that you can do to find out what was present in your area because not all of it got preserved, unfortunately. But there is some history of that pretty much everywhere on this continent. And uh, everyone's got something that they can find. Yeah, it's funny. I saw uh, someone made a meme. I'm sorry, I can't like accredit it uh, accurately, but um, someone made a meme that was just Tommy Gerald, and it said something to the effect of like, y'all think Tommy Gerald is the goat because he liked to party. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like by all accounts he absolutely did but he also was just like yeah it's like how many people have um how many aspects of old time music whatever that means have we like missed out on because of ultimately because of this like one inhumanly gregarious person um who like johnny appleseed spread his name and, and music around everywhere and which is amazing um mm. And I love that part of his legacy, but we need to like remember that for every Tommy Gerald, there's all of these like uh, <laughs> uh, less extroverted people who are mm -hmm. like amazing tradition bearers as well, and who maybe didn't have uh, a super wide influence, but they definitely had deep influences. And so, 
yeah, I, I don't know. I appreciate the work that you're doing specifically, uh, like we were talking the other day about how, how much Ithaca and like Vermont and Western mass and how much like that sound is, uh, important to you and has become a part of your culture. And, um, and now because you've made this album, uh, that has a lot of Ithaca sounds in it, uh, and traditional Ithaca <laughs> style music in it. Uh, now it is black music because, <laughs> because you did, I did it. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, well, that's the funny thing about the whole Ithaca thing and what drew me to it is I, I think, you know, I came in here with this kind of narrow focus of like, well, I'm really interested in the fact that like the banjo, you know, had its first home in this country in the Chesapeake Bay region amongst the slaves yes. there from whom I am descended. It was like a very clear family thing that I was out to investigate. Um, and then I discovered how prominent the fiddle was in that tradition. And that brought me to that. And nothing ever got me stylistically the way the Ithaca stuff did. And it took yeah. me forever to be like, Oh wait, my mom's favorite song when I was a kid was Love Shack by the B-52s. <laughs> like, I grew up on the new wave shit, and that's what it is. It's like, what yeah. if the talking heads played a square dance? Yeah. Like, like, that's very much the vibe sometimes, depending on the album. But um, for me, that's uh, a really important angle to respect partially because that whole rock and roll affect and so many of the changes that they made did come out of black culture. Even if the people making the changes were not always black, although some of them were. Yeah. And I also think that to me, the new wave influences coming into old time represents the first appearance of queer aesthetics in yeah. traditional music after the era of the blues queens in the 1920s. Yes. So you have this kind of culmination of all of the influences of black people and queer people throughout culture that then comes back into the music. It makes perfect sense why I would have been drawn to that, I think. And it made perfect sense to weave that into this album, partially because I didn't feel the need to be hyper-traditional because this, in my head, has never been an old-time album. There's yes. a lot of old-time music on it because I play that, but to me, it was like... When people ask me what type of music I play, I say I play, I say I play banjo and fiddle music from black and native communities in the southeastern United States. Yeah. Even that is, like, narrower than it should be. Yes. But because I also am like playing stuff from, you know, Texas and Oklahoma and wherever else there's there's more to it. But at the same time, to me, this whole project was about questioning the boundaries that we've been sold by this, you know, at least originally, I would argue still white supremacist recording industry that yes. was only interested in how it could use our music to make money off of either us or off of white people who wanted to be like us. And <laughs> to me, that's why I felt the need to draw in, you know, the lead belly and draw in the Gullah Geechee music and move Daniel. Um, because those are important parts of the tradition and why I brought in Josie Miles, because we can talk day in and day out about black people in string band music. I've never heard a recording of a black woman playing string band music. Mm. 
And that's certainly not because there weren't any, because the Snowden family band existed, right? In Ohio, Mm. we have historical documentation of people before emancipation happening, black women were playing in string bands, and it went away pretty much until Rhiannon Giddens showed up. Um, At least from the historical record, I mean. I'm sure it was happening and didn't get talked about. Um, So to me, it was really about pulling apart the notion of old time and blues and our religious music and even early jazz, really, in the case of Mad Mama's Blues, and realizing, like, oh, if you change up the instrumentation, that early jazz stuff kind of fits in, like, bluegrass. Yes. And, you know, if you play Where Did You Sleep Last Night with fiddles and everything else, it kind of sounds like bluegrass. And... To have a bluegrass and blues and old time and gospel showdown to just be like, these are all kind of actually the same thing or different pieces of one whole. And we ought to treat them that way. Yeah, it's almost like they're horcruxes or something. (laughs) (laughs) Black music can never die. (laughs) Well, it's like, yeah, the industry is like, yeah, we got to like separate it out and like hide it in all these corners, you know? Well, I know what you've been marathoning during quarantine. Well. (laughs) (laughs) We did it too. It's cool. (laughs) Um, Side note, J.K. Rowling sucks. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Side note, but... She will not, not stop. Not even side, no, like headline. 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 That's additionally the... J.K. Rowling is trash. Um, <laughs> and oh, yeah, no, it is kind of like that. Only I think in this case it doesn't have the effect of preserving something, right? It yeah. means that you take these things that were originally feeding into one another and influencing one another, and people were playing both, and then you give everyone a financial incentive to not talk to each other or learn from each other anymore. Right, where now all of a sudden it's like a risk if you're an old-time musician to mix in some bluegrass stuff or some blues stuff because it's not traditional. And I think blue bluegrass is more flexible and blues... Basically everything is more flexible than old-time when it comes to genre categories. And we ought to be the people most critical of it because I do not know by what rationale Lyman Enloe and Tommy Gerald are considered the same genre of music. I don't. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but anyway, that's a a whole other kettle of fish. Well, yeah, I I think we're working with something that is a pastiche of all these different styles that come together to create one whole. And I think Hmm. my goal was just to say, especially when speaking to my heritage, because so many things came out of our community that evolved into so many other things. It's really important to acknowledge that there's a common root here and that these sounds are all mutually intelligible. And I think Jeff talked about when we were doing the uh, little listening party on Facebook Live that um, he wasn't sure how some of the songs were going to come out because he didn't have in his head a template for how the instrumentation would translate. Yes. that it was difficult to imagine. Whereas for me, I heard Mad Mama's Blues. I heard the like chromatic horn line thing. I was like, this is perfect for like double fiddles, like bluegrass yeah. solos. We're going to do it. And I really had to convince everybody, <laughs> but it did work in the end. And that was really gratifying for me to see like, this is a thing I can make happen. 
and that all of these people can make happen. And I had the great fortune of working with, you know, Tatiana, who can play in all of those styles, and Nick, who's studied, you know, all the different styles, and Rachel, and everyone is super flexible in that band. So I knew we could go wherever we needed to go. Dream team. Yep. So good. Well, will you speak to Roust about? I know it's been a while since you played that at this point now. <laughs> There's so many things to talk about with you. Um, why did you choose Roust about for this album, other than that it was Dink? Uh, partially because whenever I've performed that song and there have been black people in the audience, and especially black people who've studied African music, they've been like, yeah. I recognize that rhythm. Like, I had a guy from Morocco come up to me once and be like, that is our music. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is cool. So there's, like, that part of it that clearly, it, it has spoken clearly to a lot of people about the things that I'm trying to make clear with my music. I think also there was partially just like a business interest in it in that I used it as a clifftop final tune last year and I knew people yes. were going to be looking for that. Um, yeah. Because that's, you know, that's how I initially found commercial old time recordings. After I found out about clifftop, I'd like watch Raina Gellert play in the finals and then go look up like, yes, is did she record this? Let me buy that CD. So that was part of the calculus. But I think for me, really, it was feeling the role that it played uh, as a communicative piece to people and to start the album strong the way that I did with something, you know, with Goodbye Honey You Call That Gone and with Roustabout to really have this introduction that made it very clear what I was doing and then to move into, you know, Where Did You Sleep Last Night, all these things that maybe are a little bit more commonly known and where the thing I was trying to pull out of them might not have been as obvious on its own. Yeah. Hmm. Well, what are you going to play next? What's next um, on the list? The list I, that we definitely have set in stone and decided ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. We decided which ones we were going to do. I don't know. <laughs> I'll play some fiddle. That's what we said on our, on our first attempt, but we ended up straying from that too. So I'm down for whatever. I'm gonna do Brown Skin Baby. Great.
Ah, so cool. <laughs> I love that. It's it feels like it's through composed. I know there's repetition in there, but I, I can't really get get a hold of like what the form is. I couldn't either. <laughs> um, yeah, I um so Harry Bullock sent me the recording of that. He'd been talking to me about it. I think he mentioned it first at Clifftop last summer. Um, and then it came up a couple more times and he just kept saying, oh, I have this recording that I think would be great for you. Oh, um, awesome. Which was like really weird to hear because Harry, like we've known each other for a long time and I like really respect his playing. Usually we play completely different types of tunes. So yes. it was like really amusing to me that he heard this like droney moody a minor thing and was like jake blunt <laughs> but yeah he sent it to me it's this recording from a mississippi fiddler named jabe dylan who called it brown skin girl and he learned it from a black fiddler named old dennis who called it brown skin baby so i used old dennis's name for it gotcha um yeah and to, I think going through that recording was definitely a process of like, okay, there are parts here, and then there are like little, ver like sub parts, like variations on a part that are discrete but still not a different yes. part. I don't know. It was a very <laughs> interpretive learning process. Yeah, I bet. Um, and I definitely just sat down with that recording, and I think I actually have three recordings of him playing the same tune, and was like, okay. This part happens in all of them. It ends yeah. this way in all of them. I didn't do his ending there because I'm feeling lazy today. But like, there's like different uh, different things that were consistent and some things that weren't. And I think I tried to keep the consistent things present and let myself be creative with the things that he was yeah. changing as he went. Um, yeah, so it was a fun time. Uh, definitely came out different than the other versions of it that I've heard, but uh -huh. I feel, I feel, I feel strong about it. I really like that tune. Yeah. I guess on the, on the recording, you, you, you have this tag that's like, do, 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 do. it's like uses like a different scale. Um, yeah. It's like completely unrelated to the, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. It's just like a big Dorian scale or something. Oh Yeah. <laughs> That was nasty, but yeah, I think it's I think it's just Mixolydian. It, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah not it just Dorian. like sounds completely weird because yeah, all of the notes don't happen for the rest of the of the thing. Um, There's also yeah. this moment in your recording where you did it once in this, but in in the album version, you go Whoo, up there, yeah. and first of all, I I love the like. I love how many surprises <laughs> you love to surprise people with your voice just in general. <laughs> um, like in Tui, um, when you, um, when you go, make me a pallet on your floor, darling, <laughs> you're like singing in this like sweet high tenor, like voice to match with like Libby's like ultra sweet voice. I'm just like, Jake can do this. <laughs> this is wild. And then to hear you just doing like a, like a James Brown, like, <laughs> like, like whoop, you Is know, like in this song. I don't Next know. I'm going to have to do no more. Woohoo! Tee hee! Shimona. Shimona, my little girl. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you so fun. Cut that shit out. Uh, okay, I will <laughs> cut it out. 
Okay. You don't really have to cut it out. It's fine. It was funny. <laughs> there's there's this moment in your recording um, where you go, and you hit that high note. And I don't know what you're doing or if it's in the recording or just in your voice, but it sounds like you're throat singing. Like, I, I haven't heard anything like that, but like from you definitely before or from any it, it sounded like you were doing something with like harmonics i don't think you're if i did it was unintentional <laughs> yeah it was definitely not a conscious choice but yeah, i also yeah. thought like that's a really like prominent element in traditional singing styles like when i hear elizabeth laprell sing especially i'm like oh you're like resonating space that you're making is a huge part of the sound that you're creating and yes. i like couldn't I, I can't even imagine singing anything like her ever but um mm. definitely have been inspired by that and i don't know it's a cool thing i didn't do it on purpose but i'm glad to know something is happening <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah your your relationship with that instrument is is changing as well and oh it's totally neat, it's neat to watch I definitely had, I've never really taken singing very seriously before, but approaching this and knowing I wanted to do more songs on it, um, it was something I thought a lot about. And I was really rewarded when I first got like the mixes back. My friend Ryan Coons was was staying over uh, as he was doing some business thing in DC. And we were hanging out that night and I played him some of the songs and he was just like, is this all you? And Ryan's like a much better singer than me and a really experienced traditional musician. I was like, yeah. And he was like, you are a chameleon. I thought these were all different people. Um, yeah. Which to awesome. me, it doesn't, it doesn't sound that way to me because I guess I know, but it was yeah. just a funny thing. And then played it for Armin and Ben down the street. And it was the same thing. I was playing them. They knew it was my album that I was playing and Ben like left the room and came back on a different song and was like, who is this? <laughs> I was like it's still me so apparently I need to work on my my cohesiveness as an artist I don't but think it's, so it's man. been I really it's fun so... to like know you know too. try and interpret a bunch of different musical styles and realize that it's like completely changing the way that I sing yeah. um, it's funny how much you learn from the stuff you're learning um, changes a lot more than just teaching you another song yeah yeah, I wish there was a way we could do um, Mad Mama's Blues right now on the show. Uh, so, for a couple of reasons. One, so that people can hear you do your, like, jazz blues voice. <laughs> jazz blues queen voice. Um, and, but then uh, also, uh, so that, like, uh, we could more more elegantly tie in the connection of um, you saying this song about um, uh, terroristic... Uh, acts <laughs> <laughs> from a like from a black voice, yeah. and then um, shortly before, <laughs> it's good. Josie Miles was Antifa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she, she's exactly. a terrorist. Yeah, <laughs> firmly, firmly kidding everybody. Yeah. <laughs> then, then shortly before the album came out, um, uh, minutes shit, before, minutes before shit went down. Like I yeah, was, it was literally watching like, Unicorn Riot while. <laughs> your yeah. album came out <laughs> literally it was i was i was watching it too and um sitting out in my living room out there and um just was like 
not even you know at that point there was so much going on it like didn't feel real the album thing didn't feel important it was i was just like really caught up in the world yes. and being like god there's a plague and also the continuous plague of injustice yes all of these things uh are happening at one time i can't handle it and then midnight hit and my little phone notification that i set like months ago popped up it was just like release day and I was like, holy shit, this album that I just put together, you know, Mad Mama's Blues on it starts with the words, want to set the world on fire. Yeah. I like the fact that that came out minutes after people breached and burned a police precinct in Minneapolis was yeah. just, I was like, I'm aghast that this sort of thing still has to happen, right? Like, we shouldn't have had to get to this point to make the changes that are now being made. And there are more changes still to make. But I also feel like part of what I was wanting to get across in this album was that this is on the way. This album was me being like, this has been coming for centuries. You need to act right or something bad's going to happen. And then something bad happened, right? Like it came in some ways like minutes too late. Um, But also, you know, I couldn't have changed what would happen. And ultimately with the reforms being made, I'm not sure that I would have. I think it's like important to recognize like the looting is terrible. Um, And I know there's a lot of people in my circles and other circles who are really not for protecting physical property or viewing that as a valuable loss. And I think, you know, am I worried about target getting looted? No, neither is target. Target was insured. Um, but at the end of the day, there are a lot of small business owners whose places have been destroyed that were in Minneapolis. It happened in my town. And I think the really troubling thing for me about that is that I don't perceive that to be something that's related to Black Lives Matter. I've been protesting this issue for my entire adult life, and I'm perfectly willing to believe that what happened in Minneapolis was anger boiling over and that that was an organic thing that came out of the movement there because it's not reasonable to expect that people are going to stay peaceful indefinitely when you have your knee on their neck. It's not. Yes. But at the same time, when it happened here in Providence, the the flyer that circulated the day before didn't mention George Floyd. It just said looting Providence Place Mall, 12 p.m. or 12 a.m. And I was like, okay, first of all, there's no way anyone who's not a cop sent out a public schedule for their (laughs) crime spree. Like, what are you talking about? This is a trap. Um, Yeah. But also just frustrated because I knew we would get blamed, right? And yes, the thing that I'm feeling really strongly right now is that this anger and this righteous fury that's been bubbling under the surface that I tried to really bring to the fore with this album is being parasitized. And the movement is being parasitized by white folks with different agendas, some of which may believe they're acting in our best interests, some of which probably do not. Um, but I think it's really important... I hate the phrase now more than ever because people keep saying it because everything just seems really dire right now. But um, in these times, it's really important that black people be given self-determination. Yeah, we should be able to choose our own way forward. And if we decide we want to escalate it and riot, sure, riot with us, whatever. 
but overwhelmingly in the videos that I saw in the anecdotes that I heard, it was like white kids with skateboards. It was, you know, a white guy with a hammer in Minneapolis, or I forget if it yes. was a, a pipe wrench or a hammer, some tool that he was using to break open like the auto zone. Um, here in town, my understanding is it was, it was mostly white folks who are using this opportunity to get out a lot of frustrations that they've had, some of which I'm sure I agree with. I think I tend to fall very much on the side of the Antifa crowd, even if I don't necessarily think their goals are always reasonable in the short term. Sure. Um, but in that moment, my thought was, especially engaging with some of those folks online, you've convinced yourself that you're doing this for our benefit, but really what you're doing is throwing a temper tantrum in public and leaving us to take the flack for it, right? Yeah. Black people are going to get cracked down on because someone else just took our demonstration and made it into a completely different thing and yes. our movement. And this is the peril of something like Black Lives Matter not having a command structure, right? No one is in charge. There is no organization. Yes. So there is no one to say... This was not Black Lives Matter. We don't endorse it. Our local chapter said we were, had no part of organizing that and we don't support it, right? But yeah. there's no one to say stop that. And I think the idea behind not having a leader to the movement in not having a command structure so that the organization would always stay focused on its goal instead of on preserving itself as yes. an organization that makes a lot of sense to me and is a really, really valuable reflection on some of the flaws we saw in earlier generations of black activists and the work that they did. Huh. Um, that I think also we are now witnessing drawbacks of. Uh, sure. We need a clear voice to say what it is Black Lives Matter is trying to do. And I think there are sets of demands from the local chapters that absolutely deserve to be looked into. Um, I think that there is a message out there, but I think that there's no mouthpiece to get the message to people who aren't going to go look on the Black Lives Matter website. And um, I don't know. I've gotten way off topic now, but it's no, I, it's I been appreciate a, it. Yeah. a week of really reflecting on this movement for me as someone who's been a part of it and been very supportive vocally so for ever since you know it started. I've been doing this for eight years. Uh, which is as long as Black Lives Matter has existed. And I care really deeply about it. And it's really troubling to me to see that this exploitation of that movement could lead to its end. Yeah. I, 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 I just want to speak to my, uh, my white listeners. Um, you... You right now are witnessing like a call from within the house, you know, like a a black person critiquing um, and and analyzing in like a very specific and educated way of like the the strengths and weaknesses of this movement and be very very careful uh, about how you try to parrot this <laughs> if you do at all and yeah just here my my general stance is like you know, like publicly 
uh, and I guess this is publicly, but you know, we're talking about this candidly now, but it's like, whenever I can, I say like, no, I support the movement forward, 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 you know, like whatever. And then, you know, in individual conversations, it's like, yeah, I took issue with this. Um, this was troubling. I hope this doesn't, you know, but like, there also is like a larger PR, like battle, to, you know, to be, um, and ultimately, I think the reason a lot of people are being really flippant about the looting um, in the conversation about it is because, um, is because on the other side, people are being so goddamn racist and bigoted, <laughs> like uh, about it, and yeah, and so it's like you know what. I approve of the looting because you deserve it. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I get that too. Yeah. It's a complicated situation. And I think, you know, I'm just speaking from my own perspective here that, you know, I don't have a brick and mortar business, but as a musician, I am a business owner and to have someone randomly walk into my apartment and smash all my instruments and say, Hey, it doesn't matter. It was for the, well, exactly. Like there are all these stores in downtown Providence that got smashed up and they have black lives matter signs in the windows. Yes. You know, some of them were owned by people of color. were owned by queer people who are like allied to the movement and making public statements about it. And I'm like, how, how do you justify that? That is such unneeded collateral. And there's a different way to go about it. I am not mad that they burned the police precinct. And I believe no one would have ever been arrested if they hadn't. And I will stand yes. by that statement. But me too. Yeah. That the was rest of what you're doing to watch. Yeah. It was, it, it <laughs> felt like this has been needing to happen for eight years, right? This is yeah. where our heads have been for that long. And it finally got there. I think I don't care about target. I don't care about, you know, whatever old Navy is boarded up here. <laughs> yeah. All that. I'm like, they're going to be fine. But at the end of the day, what I kept running into talking to people about it and, you know, groups for locals on Facebook and stuff like that is people being like, well, capitalism has to be dismantled, such and such. I'm like, yeah, but you're not going to dismantle capitalism by stealing sneakers. Yeah. Like if that was how we did it, it would have been done. Yeah. And (laughs) the idea that you can just act out on such a small scale and that's going to create the sort of institutional change that you're looking for is uh, naive. And I would say, really look into the ways that you can redirect that energy to something that can be sustained, to something that will not give the president an excuse to threaten to overthrow state governments with his military power. Yes. Right? There's a lot of ways this could backfire. And I think that there are better ways to go forward. And that if we listened to black leaders now and of the past, we would hear what a lot of those ways are and they would have some pretty good ideas for us. Couldn't, couldn't and wouldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Well, uh, play us another song, Jake. Do you want to do the angels done bow down? Yes. Um, That seems to make sense to me since we're talking about this and for Preface's sake, I feel like it's better sometimes to explain the songs beforehand, especially yes. for this one, because this is a spiritual. And my feeling when it comes to spirituals and the feeling of a lot of scholars of black music is that they're rarely about what they say they're about. Sure. Um, and 
they're seeking to address the circumstances in which the songwriters and the singers found themselves in, uh, even when they could not speak openly about how they felt. So this to me is a song that comes out of this same sort of destructive, vengeful feeling that I think we're now seeing manifest in the riots and that is spoken in such an explicit and direct manner in Mad Mama's Blues. This is more masked, but um, I think it belongs in the same, same category. Hmm. The angel's done bow down. The angel's done bow down. The angel's done bow down. Whoa, yes, my lord. When Jesus was a hanging up on the cross. The angels kept silent till God went off. Then the angels hung their harps on the willow trees to give satisfaction till God was pleased. The angels done bowed down. The angels done bowed down. The angels done bowed down. Woe yes, my Lord. His soul went up on a pillar of cloud, and when he moved, Lord, the heavens did bow. Jehovah's sword was at his side, on the empty air he began to write. The angels done bowed down, the angels done bowed down, the angels done bowed down. Whoa, yes, my lord. Go down, angels, to the flood. Blow out the sun, turn the moon into blood. Come back, angels, bolt the door. The time that's been will be no more. The angels done bow down. The angels done bow down. The angels done bow down. Whoa, yes, my lord. <sighs> this is, is this the first time? Have, have you recorded any other, like, religious music? No, I or have a very negative relationship with Christianity uh, on an individual <laughs> level. And it took me a really long time to, like, make peace with putting this song on the album. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I wondered, yeah, I wondered about that. I know that there is, like, religion in, in your family um, mm -hmm. and in general in, like, black families that are rooted in communities for a long time. Um, the church is very important, or the black church specifically is very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, I it was interesting to hear... Uh, a few religious songs, or at least two, right? Uh, this one and Moon Daniel. Anymore. Moon yeah, Daniel. that's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, which Daniel's I guess is even more one. coded. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, a very concrete example of, right, we're sending someone named Daniel to go grab some meat from the smokehouse where he's not supposed to be. So yeah. that in the, in the words of the, the song leader from the Macintosh County Shouters, where I learned the song, they could put the party on. Uh, yes. It really is a very direct set of instructions. 
to yeah. this the enslaved person who's going and getting sustenance for his folks. And yeah, I think it took me a really long time to come around to that. Um, my family definitely, you know, it's, there's religion all throughout it. My dad's a religious person. My grandparents are very religious. Um, and my uncle Brian is a, a minister. So there's plenty of it around. My yes. uncle Richard's the treasurer of his church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a thing. And I always grew up around it. It's not necessarily a matter of me feeling discomfort with the idea of religion, but I think that as a queer person and a person who holds progressive values, um, throughout my lifetime, the church has been the embodiment of bigotry against people like me. Yeah. And not as much the black church, because I think in my life and in the lives of my family, the black church has played a very uh, supportive role, right? This was sort of the mechanism by which, you know, when my dad talks about when he was young, um, segregation was essentially still in place. Uh, my dad went yeah. to segregated schools for a large part of his childhood and my grandmother taught in them. And the way that they would support one another in the black community when someone's crop failed or some other disaster befell, they had a medical emergency and they couldn't pay for it, the church would send around a collection and help that person, right? When schools were segregated in the area and black kids didn't have anywhere to learn, the church is what organized the schools, the schools where my grandmother taught. So there's this long legacy of the church as this supportive, subversive community organization that lifts yes. people up. But in my life, like the church that I was seeing was represented by the Westboro Baptist Church, right? Yeah. And not everyone was saying the same things, but everyone seemed to be thinking them. And yeah. I think growing up as a queer person with queer friends, watching your friends off themselves one by one or become homeless because their Christian families can't accept them or their Christian families have abused them. Uh, I, I cannot express the amount of resentment that I still hold toward the religion. I have a lot of really close Christian friends. I don't by any means think every follower of this faith thinks this way, but institutionally, I have only seen this faith act this way in my lifetime. And I've always felt this weird pressure as a queer person to like act like I don't hold a grudge about it and like everything's fine. And I understand, um, but I think part of what came out in this album is the anger that I have toward that. Yes. Um, and the fact that, right, this song, The Angels Done Bowed Down, is a plea for God to wipe the earth clean, and yet God never does. Right? Yeah. Those people died waiting for it, and it didn't happen. And mm. to me, uh, I'm coming to a place now where I'm able to understand the church in my music and in my life as a way that my culture has been passed down and preserved and the, a way that people in my community and in my family have been supported in the past. And, you know, I have always understood there to be a lot more Christians out there that are perfectly fine with me doing whatever I want than are not. Yes. Um, and I guess what I would say to folks who might be feeling taken aback or defensive with what I've said is that 
the reason I don't think about you when I think about Christianity is because you're invisible most of the time, right? When the right-wing yeah. church decides that it's going to affect policy and change someone's life, they pour millions of dollars into uh, lobbying efforts, into politicians' campaigns. They turn out in the streets by the hundreds, the thousands, and the millions to protest against whatever they don't like. When Christians don't yes. like something, you're clear about it. I get it. Um, and I appreciate the directness because <laughs> I know where I stand. <laughs> but I also do wish that the Christian folks who were fine with queer people and who were supportive of queer and trans people would show up in the same way, in the same numbers and with the same volume. It would mean so much to know that you're there. Wow, what a great call out. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of like really good faith efforts being made. Good faith, that's a funny phrase to choose, but like good Uh, faith efforts being made to like reach out. You know, I've been really touched by seeing like parents in pride parades who are, you know, free mom hugs or whatever. And people from churches showing up with signs saying, we're sorry for how we've treated you and that kind of thing. And I love that there are people trying to make amends, and I don't mean to discount those efforts, but I think the real way to make amends is to try to make stuff better, not just apologize for how bad things have gotten. And I would love to see more of that effort go into the same scale and type of organizing that we see from the evangelical right against queer people. Yeah, it's it's ironic that... Christianity, you're supposed to see the way a lot of people talk about it is you're supposed to view the entire history, uh, like the mythological idea of the Jewish understanding of history uh, Mm -hmm. specifically, um, but also today and in the future um, through the lens of of specifically the the Jesus story. Um, Like that's sort of what I was taught growing up. And uh, like everything in some way reflects the story and should. And I think it's really ironic that, um, the, you know, the Jesus story is ultimately a very queer, public, subversive figure, Jesus, who um, made a huge stink, pissed a bunch of people off. Um, rioted. Uh, rioted. <laughs> it was violent. <laughs> Uh, to religious conservatives in public and shamed them uh, and was killed for it. And it's like, if you, if you really follow that God and people believe that, you know, Christians believe that Jesus is God, like in the flesh, if you really follow that faith, then, and you've put the pieces together that that means that you shouldn't be a bigot, then, uh, Maybe there's a little bit more that you can be doing to um, putting your life on the line um, and following Jesus's example. Yeah. And I, I just have to say, like, my my Uncle Brian put out a, um, a really, really powerful statement to me um, just a week or so ago. Um, and the minister. He's a, yes. He's a yes. president of Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond. Oh, there you go. Um, and he put out a really, really powerful statement calling Christian folks to, in his words, to witness. Um, yes. And I am not at all qualified to boil down what he said because there's layers of significance to the things he chose to say and the words he used that I don't understand because I shied away from religion at a very young age. Yeah. Um, but 
I think I've, I've been really touched whenever I've seen that subversive and egalitarian and solidarity oriented strain of Christianity come forth. I think it's been really powerful for me to see. And all that I'm trying to say here is that I wish I saw it more and that would make it a lot easier for me to embrace singing songs like this and a lot easier to make peace with this being, you know, my ancestors not only died by the church, they also lived by it. Yeah. Woof. That's some really intense emotional cognitive dissonance. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's Christianity in America. That's what it is. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Thank you for talking about that. Um, We have one more uh, song for the episode proper. Uh, before we do that, where do people go to get spider tales and what should people do while they're Uh, listening to this outro? I think you can grab it. I think the best way to grab it for me is if you buy it from the label, if you go to freedirt.net, uh, you can get direct from my label, free dirt records and service company. Uh, and they're super awesome and super fair with their artists next Friday, June 19th. Bandcamp is donating its share of sales to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Great. Uh, I haven't spoken to Free Dirt about whether we're going to do anything for that. Um, but in the past, every time Bandcamp has done something like this, they have also done something to the same effect yes. um, with their Bandcamp sales. So if you want to wait to June 19th and get your copy of the album, then you can order it off Bandcamp and contribute to a good cause along the way. Yes. Um, I hope to contribute more on a personal level, but, uh, it's tight in Corona days. (laughs) It absolutely is. (laughs) And if you're not of the music purchasing flavor, uh, I appreciate it. If you would become of that flavor, because I, I, I do not make much money off of streaming, but it is available for streaming in all the streaming places. So you can listen to it on Spotify, on Tidal, Google play, all those spots. I mean, Hey, I'll just say this, like, even if you are of the music purchasing flavor, unless you're specifically listening to it on a vinyl at your house, you should be listening to it through one of those streaming services. That's true. If you buy it and then you stream it, I get more. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I I always appreciate it. People come to my concerts and they're like, Oh, I don't even own, own a CD player anymore. I'm like, okay, just Venmo me 10 bucks and then listen to it on Spotify. Yeah. (laughs) It gets more. Um, And, and it, like uh it is like a an awesome like physical object and there's like a bunch of liner notes and stuff and like yes the liner notes i think it's a i'm i'm really excited about how that came out the album art is incredible my best friend from high school abby dupuy peckman did it and they are just incredible spent so much time on every little piece of it it's really detailed and beautiful and i would love to see it spread around me too what are we going to do for this last one? Let's do Beyond This Wall. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> Good. Speaking uh, of that, that Ithaca sound. Yes, indeed. One more thing. You were telling me as you were tuning, you're reminding me of Porch Pride. Yes. Yes. So this is a, an online adaptation of Bluegrass Pride's usual annual Pride festivities. Uh, ordinarily, we'd be uh, marching with the the San Francisco Pride Parade in some way, shape, or form, have a float with a band on it. 
but because that and all the other prides got canceled and we were supposed to be in three this year, um, we wound up deciding to do sort of an online festival thing. I've been working really hard with Kara Kundert, our executive director, and Lillian Werbin and Mackenzie Fulkerson-Jones, who are the other members of the board on this particular committee. Uh, it's been a long process of trying to figure out how we're going to make it work, but we're super, super excited. It'll be uh, June 27th and 28th. A lot of different artists will be broadcasting from their very own porches, hence the name Porch Pride. Uh, yes. We've got Molly Tuttle and Amethyst Kia headlining. Front Country is also going to be playing. I'll be playing with my neighbors and our dear friends, the Vox Hunters, who are also on yes. another episode of this podcast. You're playing. Rachel Eddy yes. playing. Kathy Fink and Marcy Marks are playing. Alice Gerard right. is playing. It's, it's oh stacked. God. So <laughs> I'm super, super excited for it. Um, and I apologize to all the people I didn't just name check, but that would not be interesting to listen to uh, if sure. I just said every single like, name. <laughs> literally, literally every single name is great on yeah. the bill, and you would have to say all of them. Because, yes. Yeah. I was literally just going by who came to mind, but it's going to be a really fun time. Uh, we're super excited. Uh, up here, I've been been rehearsing with Ben and Armand, doing some squeeze box and fiddle adaptations of songs yeah. from the album, and yeah, it's like it's like you three make so much sense as like uh, just like super nerdy queer like friends and neighbors. I have no idea what this trio is going to sound like. Yeah, <laughs> it's like so a excited. very intuitive hang and a very weird band. Uh, but it's gonna be gonna a really be good time. Let me tell you, where did you sleep last night with two concertinas and a fiddle is rad. Okay. You're gonna enjoy it. I'm gonna enjoy it. We're gonna have a really good time. I can't wait. <laughs> <sighs> Thanks so much, Jake, for doing this again. As Thank you for doing it again. Second take. <laughs> Hopefully this one. Hopefully this one works.
by Spider Tales from Bandcamp on June 19th because they're donating 100% of their share of sales to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, a racial justice organization with a long history of effectively enacting change through litigation, advocacy, and public education. It's a great opportunity to support Jake and black folks in the U.S. in general at the same time. If you're too late to do that, buy the album over at Free Dirt's website, then check out Jake's Porch Pride set with the Vox Hunters June 27th at 3.30 Pacific Time. I am absolutely dying of curiosity to hear what they have prepared, and if you can, show up a half hour early and listen to my set at 3 p.m. Everything I just mentioned is linked in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app, along with a bunch of links with ways to support the show, like the Get Up in the Cool Patreon or the merch store and other things I've got going on that you might be interested in. Just go tap and click and swipe until you've supported all Get Up in the Cool's guests and supported the show itself and maybe some other stuff that I'm up to. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to Get Up in the Cool's 200th episode. I will be interviewed again. I'm on the hot seat and we have a very special guest host. I can't wait for you to hear it. It's going to be a real special time. 